message from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, Why Study the Bible Has the Distinct Air of a Series in Store. Thank you, Reggie. I appreciate it. Good afternoon. It's good to see everybody here today uh, on another beautiful Sabbath day. Uh, just to uh, let you know, there is a handout for today's message coming around. Uh, if we don't have enough copies, we can make a few more. Uh, if we need to make a few more, just uh, ask Ron Kolb and Brian might make a few more for us. So, so the message today is entitled, Why Study the Bible? A few weeks ago, on the last day of Unleavened Bread, I gave a seminar entitled, uh, you know, about the, it was about the importance of Bible study and importance specifically about Bible interpretation. It was called, uh, you know, Introduction to Bible Interpretation. And some of that material, not all of it, but some of that material will be in here. And that seminar was kind of a pilot. Uh, it was kind of a pilot for a new series that me and Steve Andrews has been kicking around. Well, I've been talking to him about it for about a year now, about my interest in doing a series specifically on uh, the history of the Bible, the background of the Bible, the cultural influence of the Bible, the different parts of the Bible. Uh, and, of course, it's something that you know, would take you know, more than one sermon or one, one, more than one message. And so today is kind of the part one. It's going to be kind of a, an introduction to just the background uh, of the Bible. Now, I do have three things going on here, so I just want to ask you to bear with me. I have my notes, I have your handout, and I have a PowerPoint slide behind me. All of these things are just a little different. Okay? You might think I'm crazy uh, to try to be able to juggle all this, but I didn't want to give you what I have in my notes. It would be you know, eight pages long, first of all. Uh, and I wanted to just kind of give you a handout just that was kind of a skeleton form. So if I get a little mixed up, if I have to turn around a little bit, please just bear with me. That is the reason why, because I'm trying to make sure that I'm uh, staying on the same page uh, with you as I am what I'm talking about. So why study the Bible? Okay, I just want to, before we start, I did this on the seminar. I'm, I'm really serious about this. I do not want to take any credit whatsoever. Uh, the information that you will be presented with today, I didn't come up with it, Okay. Rather, what I did was, is try to basically uh, come up with, you know, the best sources I could find on some of the topics that we're going to discuss uh, on the background of the Bible, on the history of the Bible, uh, sources that I believe is very faithful to the biblical message, sources that come from authors that have a high view of the scripture, have a high respect personally themselves, uh, and so I just want to be really clear about that, okay? Uh, so... With that in mind, I also want to give credit, and I also put this on the handout, some of the sources that I consulted in coming up with this, okay? Of course, it'll be on the next slide right there. I'll just show you. If you want to consult some of these sources, they're pretty good, okay? Uh, they really don't deal with doctrine, all right? Obviously, we might have some doctrinal differences than these authors have personally, but they really mostly, the things that they write about, are things that me and you would agree with, specifically the background of the Bible, the historicity of the Bible, the uniqueness of the Bible, and how it's been preciously preserved throughout time. Okay? So I just wanted to kind of show you those sources right there. All right, so with this message today, I want to kind of outline, you know, I want to 
start off by saying, you know, what do we, what do we want to get out of this message? Or what do I want, to, want you to get out of this message? So we have several different objectives that I want to just kind of point out. First of all, I want to identify how the Bible has influenced our Western heritage and culture. There's no other book in history that has been more influential than the biblical text to our Western world. You don't have to agree with the Bible. Of course, most all of us here do. But I tell people this. It doesn't matter if you agree with it or you do agree with it. That's just a fact. You can believe that it's all nonsense. That doesn't change the fact that it's been extremely influential. And we're going to get into that a little bit today. Okay? I also want to identify what the Bible is. You know, we always have heard that word, the Bible, but where did it come from? Is that what Jesus and the apostles, is that what they called their, you know, their Bible? And we, we oftentimes will refer to their Bible. You know, they had the Old Testament, and of course, after Jesus was crucified, the New Testament began to be developed. But what did that word come from? How is that word Bible, which has come to us in the English language, how did it come to us? Okay? We also want to identify... Uh, the anatomy of the Bible. You might be asking the question, what's the anatomy of the Bible? The anatomy of the Bible is basically, how is the Bible divided up? Uh, how is it organized? What's the structure of the Bible? How did that happen and come to be? And we're going to look a little bit about that today. And the last, of course, is what is obviously a part of the title of this message today, uh, which is, what benefits is there in studying the Bible? And we're going to look at three, and these three benefits is what I presented in the seminar a few weeks ago. Okay, so with that, let's go to our first point here. Make sure that I'm kind of on task. Make sure, okay, there we go. The Bible's cultural influence. We live in a, what sometimes people will call a Judeo-Christian heritage or, or culture. Sometimes we also refer to it as a Greco-Roman heritage. Okay, so with that being said, let's ask the question, what is the Bible's cultural influence? Okay, the first thing we need to look at, what is the Bible not? What is the Bible not? The Bible is not just an ordinary book. It's not just a book that, you know, is a bestseller because it's got a lot of good stories in it. But it's a book that has been influenced to such a degree that it literally is the most printed and copied and translated text in the entire world. Okay? Especially here in the western part of the world. And so there's never been a book more printed Somewhere an estimated 100 million copies is produced every year. That's quite a bit. It's a bestseller. Okay? This is just a quick quote for you, real quick. And this, I don't have this on your handout, but I have it on the slide. The influence of the Bible permeates almost every aspect of life in the 20th century Western world. Laws, literature, art, music, architecture, morals, and of course religion. Many of the Bible's words and phrases are a part of our current speech, and allusions to its stories are wildly, widely understood. And I'm going to stand over here, Sue. I'm not in anyone's way. It is a vital part of our total cultural heritage. Indeed, many people would claim that it is, for a variety of reasons, the most important and influential collection of writings ever brought together and bound in a single volume. The Bible is a perennial bestseller and has been translated into more than a thousand different languages and dialects, and that is not stopped yet. It's continuing. It's continuing to be uh, translated into more languages. Okay? So let's just look real quick, just some basic things that me and you today can see in, like, right now here. Okay? You know me as Curtis. Okay? That's what I've always went by. It's my middle name. Uh, but uh, most of us in here, or not most of us, also know that a lot of the names that we have picked for our children uh, actually go back to the Bible. 
In fact, you probably have friends, people you grew up with that have Bible names. David, okay? Mary, Elizabeth, Samuel, which I am actually, that's my first name. I, I go by Curtis, my middle name, but my name is Samuel, at least legally first, and then, of course, my son's is too, and so is my father. These are actual names that go back to the Bible. And of course, these are very common names in our western part of the world. How about movies and literature? A lot of movies that's came out in the last 15, 20 years, of course, even longer than that. We know that they actually have biblical names, okay? Like, for instance, Armageddon. It's a Bruce Willis movie from, I think, 1999. I remember that. And that word actually is a place, and it's a description that comes from the Bible. The Matrix. I remember that was a big hit. And it was like a series. It was like a trilogy. I wasn't really into that movie, but I know some of you may have been. It was a very popular movie, Okay. Uh, the Lord of the Flies, which is a big piece of literature in our Western world. Okay? And of course, East of Eden, another one. All of them are text or pieces of literature or movies that have been extremely influenced by the Bible, even in the titles themselves. How about politics? Of course, politics probably goes without saying. Uh, from the very beginning of our nation, we know that we have, have founding fathers that sought to uh, you know, establish this nation on biblical principles. Uh, we know that we can look back in recent history and all the way back to the Civil War era and Abraham Lincoln that many of his speeches gave actual scriptures in his speeches to persuade people for things like not dividing the nation on or over slave states and free states or uh, to persuade people to become having an abolitionist mindset like he did. Martin Luther King Jr., the famous civil rights leader, uh, of course, oftentimes in all of the speeches that he gave, used biblical motives and biblical themes. Like, for instance, in the day before he was actually assassinated, one of his last speeches, he actually said these words right here. He says, we've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Of course, he was assassinated there in 1968 of April. And of course, we know that this is a biblical allusion to him. And oftentimes in his speeches, as many other writings of that period of time, people who were uh, trying to uh, get rid of slavery, who were even in slavery, they use the Exodus story of the Bible uh, as a way to identify uh, with their own movement that was going on in their life. Of course, we know the story of Moses. He actually didn't himself get to enter into the promised land, but he was able to kind of get up to that mountaintop and look over and see from a far distance, get a glimpse of it before he died. Okay? Uh, we know that during the slavery period, there was something called African-American spirituals that's actually been permeated into our culture today. Uh, I know that when I was growing up, and I didn't know this until actually recently, the, the, you know, that song that used to always be sung maybe by our grandmother or by our, by our mother, the, the Swing Low Sweet Chariot. I don't know if you know this, it might be common knowledge to you, but I didn't, that that actually is a song describing that went back to the slavery spiritual days when they sung these hymns that they combined with you know, American folk music with African music and they usually had biblical themes to them. That was actually a song referencing Elijah when Elijah was taken up by that fiery chariot. Of course it was kind of like a prayer asking God, you know, sweep me away. Take me away from this bondage that I'm in. Okay? 
We also have other cultural allusions that's embedded into our language that we don't always even think about. Okay? For instance, you might be watching some sort of sporting program or some sort of boxing match. And, you know, boxing's kind of, you know, there's a big boxing match tonight, but I know that boxing, historically in America, used to be a really big thing. And sometimes the announcers will come on there and say, this is a real David and Goliath match. Well, in our culture, we would know exactly what they were talking about, what they were referring to. The story of David and Goliath, one of the uh, big stories in the Bible that we learn as children. Okay? But sometimes people say those things, and they're not even trying to get biblical, but it's just because we live in the Western world that's been so influenced by the Bible that it's so embedded into our common everyday vernacular and speech that it just comes out. Other things might include things like an eye for an eye. You know, sometimes people use that language to talk about justice and retribution. Uh, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, obviously, that, both of those, all of these go back to the Bible. Sometimes people might be describing some sort of epiphany experience that they have. Some sort of, they've come to terms, they've come to have some sort of enlightenment. And they might say, I've had like a road to Damascus story. Of course, that's referring to the Apostle Paul when he was on the road to Damascus there in Acts and he experienced or had an encounter with the risen Jesus. But it's also sometimes a very misused book, okay? A very misused book. Uh, the Bible has been used for killing people unjustly, for starting wars unjustly. The Bible has been used to justify things like slavery, things like racism. The Bible has been used for apocalyptic attitudes and behaviors, okay? Which kind of makes me think back to another biblical illusion, which really isn't a biblical illusion, but it's, it's tied to the Bible. We all remember Jim Jones, right? And I was looking at the, uh, the, the, the title of the sermon by Mr. Gregory today, uh, and I think it was entitled uh, Different Methods of a Deception. And I was thinking, well, in this day and age, sometimes when we think of the idea of deception, we say, man, they drank the Kool-Aid. What does that mean? That's referencing back to Jim Jones and, of course, his group of people that he had convinced of, and I'm not extremely familiar with it, that he had convinced to drink Kool-Aid that had poison in it and killed people. Okay? So the Bible has been used to do all types of things, specifically misused. Okay? Also, playing with poisonous snakes, something I brought out in our uh, seminar that I gave on interpretation. I said sometimes misinterpretation of the Bible can actually have fatal consequences because some actions that you do can actually bring death to you, such as dealing with poisonous snakes. And there are groups of people that use the Bible to justify that you as a Christian should use poisonous snakes uh, in your faith and in your walk with God. And it's also been one of the most cherished books, one of the most fought after books, okay? And, uh, okay, I got a little mixed up there, I'm sorry. Uh, never a more fought after book. We have a few individuals in here that are coming from, it sounds like, the Renaissance Fair, which is kind of a coincidence because I wanted to kind of quickly talk about uh, the Renaissance period. You see, the early church, as things developed, eventually through time, when the Roman Catholic Church was pretty much you know, the sole church, uh, the Bible was not translated into every, everybody's language. They didn't own a Bible. In fact, the Renaissance plays a key role in this. You see, the Renaissance 
took place somewhere around the 15th century, beginning in, around in, in, the, in the country of Italy, that Italian peninsula. And before it began, one of the factors that allowed it to begin was actually the Byzantine Empire. And if you know your history, if you don't, basically when the Roman Empire fell, it was just the western portion that fell. The eastern portion actually stayed together and it became known as the Byzantine Empire. Well, why does the Byzantine Empire have any relevance to the Renaissance period? And why does the Renaissance period have any relevance to the Bible in our own language? Well, one of the reasons is because the Byzantine Empire was in that Balkan Peninsula region where the ancient Greek city-states used to be. And see, these scholars and these, these people that were uh, you know, living in the Byzantine Empire, and they might you know, earn their money by uh, being a scholar of languages, being linguist, translating, and being experts in the old classics like uh, Homer and, 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 and Plato and Aristotle, some of those ancient works, ancient classical works, whenever the Byzantine Empire was starting to decline and the Seljuk Ottoman Turks were coming there to the area that the Byzantine Empire previously had jurisdiction over, a lot of those scholars said, you know what, we better uh, get out of here. Where they go? They went to a place that actually could fund them continuing in their profession. Where was that? Italy. Italy was a very highly uh, merchant area. A lot of trade was going on there. And so it became a natural place for a lot of those refugee scholars to come to. And when they showed up there in Italy, and of course I'm talking in generalities, they brought with them in their satchels and their bags some of these ancient classical works. And so all of a sudden, Italy had this exposure to things that they had for a lot of periods of time lost. And they all, the word renaissance itself is a word that means rebirth. It's a, you know, it's a reflowering. And, and all of a sudden, because of these Byzantine scholars and because of other things, Italy was actually more wealthy than a lot of the other places in Europe, there became this great interest in getting back to understanding things of art, things of the classical age, like the ancient Greeks, uh, as well as some of the other classical periods. And so there began this movement, this cultural movement, this rebirth in, in, in things such as humanism. And humanism was the idea of, you know, the church for so long had just said that, you know what, you shouldn't think about anything in this life. You should just solely think about, you know, the life after next. But they started actually looking at the old ancient Greece, Greek uh, sculptures and, and starting to, they started to adopt some of those ancient Greek uh, ideals about the ideal man and things like that and at, over the process of time this movement began to go all throughout Europe and humanism was a movement where people it was a movement where people were in, uh, encouraged to get educated to learn to learn rhetoric to learn philosophy uh, to learn you know mathematics to learn you know the academic arts the academic subjects and so basically over time people began to become more educated. The, the printing press came about, which further uh, facilitated the Renaissance, but also further facilitated the people's want and need to have their own Bible. And so after the printing press came along, you know, if you didn't, you know, before the printing press, to have a book was very expensive. You'd have to, you know, hire a scribe, someone who would copy it, and it would take that person a lot of effort, a lot of work. But when the printing press came out, the price of getting a book, such as maybe you know, having a Bible printed, was significantly lower. So it opened up the door to a lot more people having the Bible. And so that's just a little background story about 
the Bible and its you know, origins and you know, there being a great need for people or want and desire for people to actually have and own their own Bible. We also know that it was heresy to translate the Bible into the vernacular. Vernacular is the common language that people spoke. There's a lot of arguments about it. One of those arguments was, is like for instance, I remember uh, sometimes when they would talk about it, they would just talk about how you know, Latin was the, was the language of the church back in that day. And to the mind of a priest, they would think, oh, you're going to translate the Bible, that's heresy, into that vulgar language of the English or that vulgar language of the German because it was considered the scholarly language, the holy language of the day. And so we also know that over time, men took it upon themselves, did not care about their own lives, such as people like William Tyndale, who actually was burnt at the stake for translating the Bible into English. He's also known as the father of the English Bible, as well as having a nickname for God's outlaw for the things that he did. Okay? And so it's a very book that's been extremely uh, uh, fought, at, fought, fought after book. Okay? But it's also a very cherished book. As we know, as we can see, with the translation and the people actually risking their lives to translate the Bible into the vernacular despite being caught. I mean, you can watch documentaries, and it's very interesting because today in our day and age, we see people like driving big old trucks or having big old like luggage cartels and things like that, and inside they might have like a big truck full of like sand or cement, and then inside of them is stuffed like drugs. Well, literally, that's the method they used back in these days. They would have big old, you know, uh, big old uh, cargo carts and things like that, they might be acting like they're smuggling in or they're, they're bringing in some wheat or some barley and things like that. And inside those bags would be Bibles that would be packaged up and hidden. They would smuggle Bibles into places like London and England and things like that, uh, specifically William Tyndale. Okay? Uh, sacred to millions, of course, we are a part of those millions. We know that the Bible, we believe that it's a sacred text that it's God's word and it's been you know, preserved to us today. An example of this is the great scribal care that, for instance, the Masorites took. 500 to 100 AD, there's a group of scribes that actually took it upon themselves to uh, transmit and to preserve the Old Testament text. Uh, and the actual word Masorites actually comes from an actual term uh, that talks about you know, a meticulous method that was used in order to ensure this. The actual word scribe is a Hebrew word for counter. And so there was this great process that was taken to make sure uh, that the text was actually being translated correctly and accurately. Like, for instance, that, that there wasn't a letter missed or that there wasn't, you know, that's a very uh, taxing uh, thing to do to be able to, to translate word for word uh, from one text to, uh, or from one piece of papyrus to another. And so there were processes put in place. There was great care put in place, and because of the Masorites, and also there's Greek scribes, because of that, me and you today uh, get to enjoy a Bible that's been extremely preserved, specifically the Old Testament, uh, which is the Masoretic text, which our Old Testament is based on, which is the most reliable Old Testament, uh, Old Testament text that we have, which our English versions are based on. Okay, So let's ask the question now, moving on to that second point. What is the Bible? Where do we get that term? Where did that term come from? Okay, what is the Bible? The actual term Bible actually comes from a Latin derivation of a Greek word called biblion, which just means book. It means roll, which biblion is actually comes from a word named biblos. Now, you might be asking the question, well, what does this mean? What does this have to do with anything? Well, 
You see, they didn't have just paper like we have paper today. They didn't have printing presses. They didn't have any of those things. And the actual word biblion is actually a word that comes from Biblos that comes from one of the names given to the papyrus reed. Okay? The papyrus reed was a reed that was grown in ancient Egypt along the Nile River. This is before they had paper. This is before they even had parchment. This is before they had things called codices. So what they had to do is they had to take this papyrus, this leaf, this reed, and they'd have to you know, stitch it together, and they'd be able to splice together long pieces of papyrus, and they would be able to write on a scroll. That's what they would call it, a scroll or a book. And they would have to use like a wooden uh, handle called a, uh, it was called a, uh, uh, a navel. Sorry, I forgot what the term was, a navel. And if you can see right here to the, to the side, that would be what it would look like. Now, think about it this way. Just a long 15 feet piece of papyrus, and the entire book's you know, basically been written on that piece of papyrus. Not the most convenient way to find a spot. Okay? You're not flipping through pages, but you're literally, and you have to take in great care. This stuff was very fragile. We actually do have some pieces, some you know, examples of it today. Okay? So anyways, as time went on, the Greek word for biblos and things like that came to be known as just to reference a scroll or a book. And so instead of, you know, us having just a book that's got all the different texts, you would have a guy maybe with his handful of different scrolls that would, you know, obviously be Isaiah, that would, might have to be divided into two. Eventually, over time, they came up with something called codices, which was basically they were able to take a trunk of a tree and slice thin little pieces of wood off the trunk of the tree in such a way, and of course they would soak it in different types of uh, liquid, and they were able to start making like pages and things like that. And after the codices, after using uh, those slices of wood, then came parchment, which was animal skins, and then eventually paper over time. And so the Bible obviously wasn't just written on what you know, me and you use for paper today. Okay? So that's where the term Bible comes from. Eventually, over time, the Latin word biblion, it was, it was uh, uh, basically translated down, and then the English, ver the English word Bible means the books, basically, for us. Okay? So the Bible is actually not a book, but several books all in one. Okay? How about some of the different genres of the Bible? And of course, I brought this out in my message about the, uh, my message about the uh, Bible interpretation, we know that we have different genres. Genres are different types of literature. We don't just have, you know, narrative, but we have, you know, narrative, prophecy, we have poetry, uh, we have apocalyptic, like Revelation and Daniel. Then sometimes we actually have genres within genres, okay? And what that basically means is that you might be reading a piece in Isaiah where you're reading something prophetic, but all of a sudden it turns into narrative and things like that. And so all of these things, which helps to show the diversity of the Bible, uh, to, to demonstrate just the, uh, the wonders of the Bible as well as the diversity of the Bible. Okay? I'm going to kind of move along real quick because we need to kind of make some more headway. All right, let's get to the anatomy of the Bible. How is the Bible divided up? How is the Bible divided up? And that's on that second sheet there. Uh, we have basically two parts of the Bible. The Old Testament is the first part, obviously. Most of all, some of this, a lot of this is all review. We are going to get into some things that maybe you weren't as familiar with that might even help you, uh, you know, clear up some, maybe some confusion that you've ran into today. In our English Bible, this is based on the English division of the Bible, we have 39 documents. We have a total of 66 documents if we combine the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay? 
uh, written roughly by 40 different authors, the Old Testament is. Okay? Covers more than 2,000 years, and the contents deals primarily with the nation of Israel until about 400 B.C. Of course, that's whenever uh, the, the time period that, you know, what we call between 400 B.C.E. and then the first century A.D., we call that the intertestamental period. Okay? And so uh, that is uh, the anatomy of the Old Testament just in our English versions. The New Testament, a little easier, 27 documents written roughly by 10 authors, written approximately from between the years of 49 A.D. to 95 A.D., obviously a lot shorter time span than the Old Testament was written itself. Contents records the history of Jesus from his life on earth, his teachings, and all the way down to his future return, and even into what we call the New Jerusalem, the New Earth. Okay? Uh, one thing that I was wanting to bring out, though, which is, might help clear up some confusion on some people's part. Maybe you've been uh, exposed to this before. Uh, historically and even today, the Hebrew Bible, as it's called, uh, or the Hebrew Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament, obviously Jews call it the Hebrew Bible, it is not divided in the same way that our English Bible is divided. Now, I've had people ask me, well, do they have a different Bible or a different Old Testament than we have? No, they don't. They just divide it differently. Okay? The Hebrew Old Testament has a threefold division. First section is called the Torah. Maybe you've heard that term before. It simply means instructions or teaching. Okay? Oftentimes in the English, we use the word law. Okay? First five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy, also refers to sometimes, that's the first five books is what the Torah is. Sometimes it's referred to as the Pentateuch. In the day and age of the New Testament, the world had been heavily Hellenized. That means that Greek culture had swept down into the Mediterranean world and basically took over. Most of the people spoke English, or not English, but Greek rather, and a lot of times things were written in Greek. Okay? Pentateuch just simply means, you know, the five books. Pena, Pentecost, you know, we know that that term has something to do with five, 50 days, you know, count 50. So that's where that word comes from itself, okay? In uh, two Jews, the section of the Torah or the law or the instructions is the most important part of the actual Hebrew Bible. The next section is called the Navim. It's the prophets, okay? So what you have in this section of the Hebrew Bible, you have the prophets like Joshua through Kings, but you also have the prophets that we call like Isaiah and Ezekiel. They actually call it the Book of the Twelve, which we call it in our English Bible, the Twelve Minor Prophets, but they divide it into one section, okay? All right? The third section, the Ketavim. Okay? It's the writings, real simply. It's the different texts like the Book of Poetry, uh, like Psalms, Proverbs, uh, also, you know, like the Megalot, which is the Hebrew for scrolls. Basically, it's just basically five different books, like Song of Songs, Ruth, Limitations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And it also includes historical books, which is very interesting, and some people uh, wonder why. Why is things like Daniel not in the, in, in the prophets? Why isn't Chronicles in the prophets? There's really not an answer for that, uh, as there are some scholars that think maybe it's because they're a little bit later in their development and they just got placed in this actual division of the actual text. Okay? So this is how the Bible is divided up. If you were to go and you were to see, like for instance, why is this important? That's one of the things that I wanted to bring out. The reason it's important is because if we looked at Luke, the 24th chapter, and we also looked at other texts, like for instance, Jesus says things like, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Okay? Now, what we see is, is that this is how the Bible is divided up for 
the early Christians, for the writers of the New Testament. And so it's not a bad idea for us to be a little bit familiar and educated on how they would have seen the biblical text, which would have been that threefold division. Okay? Uh, how about the English Old Testament as we have it today? Well, our English Old Testament is primarily based off the Latin Vulgate, the order of the Latin Vulgate, okay? which was the biblical text, the primary biblical text for over a thousand years. Okay? Uh, you have the law, which is just Genesis through Deuteronomy, historical books, Joshua through Esther, poetry, Job through Song of Songs, and then the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. Okay? So you have more of a four-point division in the English Old Testament. All right? That's why they're different. The question is, though, and some people wonder this, are the books different? No, they are not different. They're not different. In fact... What we do see is that in the Hebrew Bible, anywhere from 22 to 24 books is how they divide it up. And in the English uh, Old Testament, there's 39 books, but they're the, exactly the same. They're, it's just a matter of how you order them. Like, for instance, instead of having 1 and 2 Samuel, it might be one book. Instead of having 12 minor prophets, it might be just one book called the Book of the Twelve. And so that's where some of the confusion comes along. How about the names of the book? The Hebrew Bible is derived from the first word or the first most important word in the actual text. Primarily this is the case in the first section of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah. Okay? Uh, the English Old Testament, which is much, has a lot of its uh, naming derived from the Pentateuch, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. We didn't really talk a lot about that. Not the Pentateuch, but the Septuagint rather, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. Uh, a lot of the the names that we have for our English Old Testament, it comes from the important content. I'm going to give you like a graph, maybe kind of help show you this. Here's the English Old Testament title for Genesis to Deuteronomy. So Genesis, what's that word mean? Origin or generation. The book of Genesis, what's it talking about? It's talking about the first things. It's talking about the beginning of time, the you know, origins, Genesis. Okay? Exodus is about, you know, Exodus is a word that means departure. Okay? So that's where we get these terms the English Old Testament. In the Hebrew Bible, they're a little different, okay? Uh, Bereshit, for example, in the beginning, that's the first word of Genesis. And so it has come to be known, or a tradition, to name these books after the first few letters, or the first few words, rather, or most important words, in the actual text itself. So this is just for the purpose of clearing up some confusion, maybe, that you've ran into, if you've ever been too exposed to this, but mainly just also to ensure you that it is not different it's just a matter of dividing. It's a matter of naming from different ways. Okay? Uh, the New Testament division is a lot easier uh, because there's not, obviously, two different... I mean, there's several different groups, but it's not as much history, and it's pretty straightforward. We have four Gospels, which are Matthew through John. We have one historical document called the Book of Acts that is tracing the uh, life of the early church, uh, the things that took place in the early church, and how Christianity, how the message of the Gospel spread. Okay? We have 21 letters, uh, which is Roman from, Romans from Jude. Uh, one portion of those letters, or a lar the largest portion of those letters, is Pauline letters. That means that they're attributed to the Apostle Paul. The other section of the letters is known as the general letters, or the general epistles, which is written by Peter and John and James and Jude. Okay? And also, a lot of people place Hebrews in the general epistles because there is some controversy whether or not Paul actually wrote Hebrews or not. Okay? It's not an essential issue to debate, I don't think. It's, it's a pretty uh, kind of a mute point. No reason to divide over that. Some people get kind of heated about that, but I don't think there's a reason to. Prophecy, one document, Revelation. Okay, it's an apocalyptic book. We 
We know that Revelation is akin to Daniel. Understanding Revelation is very helpful to understanding the book of Daniel as well. Okay? All right, so let's get into this last little part, and we'll be done here. I know that it's, uh, that was a lot of information. I appreciate and that you bear with me on this. Um, why study the Bible? First of all, I have three points. Okay? The first point, Bible study is essential to spiritual growth. This comes from 1 Peter, the second chapter, verse 2. This text tells us, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. I want to bring out three different points for us to consider here. Okay? Three different points for us to consider. Uh, the first point is that if we look at this text, it brings out, number one, our attitude. How are we to desire the Bible? Well, like a newborn babe. A newborn babe, what does that newborn babe do? It desires. There's a, there's a mindset that goes into it. Okay? There's an attitude. It also brings out the idea of appetite. It's not just you know, wanting it, but there's a, there's a strong appetite. There's a, there's a hunger for that Bible, which is brought out there in, in, in second, uh, or First Peter. rather. Okay? Now, with this, I think that we can all relate to three different types of Bible readers. Maybe we've been all three types before in our past, or even today, okay? The first one is what I consider, the, or what we call the nasty medicine Bible reader. Bible is like nasty medicine. It's bitter, it's hard, it's hard to digest, it doesn't taste good. We know it might help us because it's some good medicine, but it's not enjoyable. The second type is the shredded wheat. It's not necessarily bitter, but it doesn't taste very good, okay? It's not necessarily something we're like, oh, I just can't wait to get some of that. Okay? It's bland. It doesn't have a lot of taste to it. It's like eating hay. The third type of Bible reader is your strawberries and cream type. Psalm 19, verse 10 says that the word of God, the law of God, is sweeter than honey. Obviously, I think most of us could agree that there have maybe been points of our life where we've kind of been all three. Uh, maybe before we were converted, maybe we were exposed to the Bible, but it wasn't really that interesting to us. It was hard to understand all those genealogies, all that stuff. You know, maybe you try to read the Bible. I know people, they say, I started, but man, I got to all these genealogies, and I quit. I couldn't do it. Uh, so, obviously, we want to get to the strawberries and cream type. But there's also a third aspect that we can look at, which is our aim. What's the point of consuming nutrition? to sustain us, especially when we're newborn babes, to grow, to grow strong, to grow into adulthood, to mature, okay? So the Bible says is essential for this spiritual growth. The second uh, point here I want to make is Bible study is essential to spiritual maturity. This comes from Hebrew, the fifth chapter, verses 11 through 14. It says, concerning him... We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Which is kind of strange because we just saw desire the pure milk. We'll get to that in a minute. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And, of course, this comes from Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verses 11 and 14. Of course, it's talking about two different ways 
of talking about milk. In the first instance, it's talking about the mindset, the, the, be in the attitude of a child or a babe that desires that milk. But in this part, we know that sometimes the word of God is talking about the meat, the meat of God. You know, hearing the word of God helps us grow. And of course, we know that if we want to continue to grow and mature in Christ, we have to have spiritual meat. You have milk, but eventually you have to move on to that spiritual meat to actually grow in our maturity and faith in God. Okay? Uh, acquiring that taste, that appetite that we talked about, it comes from this maturity. Okay? It comes from this maturity. When we were kids, maybe there were things that we didn't like to eat very well. We had to acquire that taste. Over time, we matured. How we mature? We mature through the Word of God, through our relationship with God. And eventually, through maturity, we are able to enjoy some of those things that we didn't really like when we were kids. So sometimes the acquirement comes through maturity. Uh, the last point, Bible study is essential to spiritual effectiveness. There's a text that most of, most of us know pretty well. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And of course, that comes from 1 Timothy the third chapter, verses 16 and 17. Okay? We know that this is a text that shows us about the Word of God, the nature of Scripture. We know that the nature of Scripture, that it's God-breathed, it's inspired by God. We have human authors, but those human authors have been uh, inspired in such a way that they've been, they were guided to say and, tra and, and transmit the things that uh, God wanted them to transmit. Okay? And so we look at the nature of Scripture, we know that it's an errant result you know, inerrant means basically without error. We also know it's inspired. We also see some functions and some benefits uh, of the scriptures through that passage. Like, for instance, it's good for teaching doctrine, uh, for reproof or for rebuke. You know, what's not right, for correcting and, and for how to make it right, for instruction and how to keep it right. And so many people are tied up in this idea that they can just, you know, maybe rely on God's spirit. Well, I'm here to tell you that's a very important part of us studying God's Word, to understand God's Word. We need God's Spirit. But the problem comes whenever we think that we can just, you know, believe what we want, or not just believe what we want, but, you know, we can just, you know, interpret the Bible however we want, or maybe come up with a doctrine however we want. The problem is, is that it, if we all do that, there's no anchor. Okay? It's all free-for-all. Okay? If I just rely on the Spirit only then the difficult part is, is that I could say, well, the Spirit has taught me this, and you could say well, the Spirit's taught me that. It's totally contradicting, and we're really just left just to believe that, well, maybe God just thinks that we, or leads us to do different things, even if they contradict each other. Of course, I don't think we believe that. I think that that's what anchors us is the Word of God, okay? And, of course, the last little part here, the purpose is to equip. I got two examples. One of them is the sword of the Spirit. We look at Ephesians, you know, the armor of God. We have all these different pieces of armory, one weapon. What's the one weapon? The Word of God. It's the only weapon in that text, okay? The next thing what we have is, is we have Jesus' temptation. Matthew, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 11. We know we've read this story before. What we see is, how does Jesus combat Satan? Through the Word of God, quoting Scripture to him, okay? So... With this, I just want to kind of quickly review the main points that we went over. Uh, we tried to identify 
the uh, influence that the Bible has had on our, on our culture. Of course, we just kind of, you know, the tip of the iceberg on that. Uh, we try to identify what the Bible is, understanding that the Bible is comprised of many different books uh, that's uh, been translated. And we also know that the anatomy of the Bible, which is another uh, objective that we had, we looked at the Bible has been, you know, is divided up a certain way, has a certain anatomy to it. The Hebrew Bible has a little bit different of anatomy than the uh, English Old Testament does, but that's okay because it's not that the books are different. They're just divided up differently. And we also try to identify some benefits, even though there are many more. We could actually spend weeks on this, the different benefits of studying the Bible. So with that, I appreciate it. And the next message will be continuing on on this.